Welcome to Illumination by Modern Campus. Through this series, we'll be speaking to college and university leaders about the trends, ideas, and opportunities that are shaping the future of higher education and picking their brains for best practices and advice that leaders can apply to their own institutions. On today's episode, the Evolution's Editor-in-Chief, Amr Alawalia, speaks with Sanjeet Sethi, who is President of the Minneapolis College of Art and Design. We talk to Sanjeet about the core fallacies shaping the higher education space and how we can create a more accessible future. Let's get into it. Well, Sanjeet, thank you so much for joining us for uh, today's episode of Illumination. We really do appreciate it. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. We'll start off with, I guess, chatting about the article that you wrote for the University World News, debunking six continuing fallacies of higher education. You know, it's a great piece. I'd really recommend anyone who is listening to this episode to check it out. Why did you feel it was important to tackle the core fallacies that are shaping our understanding of the higher ed space? You know, I think in part because we have an opportunity here as we start to understand the full impacts and ramifications of the pandemic. Paraphrasing from a a really great quote from Rumi, which says, new organs of perception come about as a result of necessity. Therefore, in order to increase your perception, you need to increase your necessity. And so, you know, I think for me, Uh, The pandemic has provided that real impetus for perceptual abilities to understand higher education. I think the two fields that will see, and in many ways should see, the greatest degree of disruption as the world comes to grasp with what COVID-19 has wrought on it and its relationship to all sorts of other um, problems that we see uh, globally um, is healthcare and higher education. And so I feel like that for me, um, it became an impetus for myself and, and my colleague, Elliot Felix, to go ahead and, and really start to tackle um, an inward uh, looking understanding of what we think is really preventing institutions from really fully actualizing, I think, uh, a tremendous potential. Now, in the article, you highlight six core fallacies, and I'll just read them out quickly, that there is a traditional student that learning happens Monday through Friday, nine to five in autumn and spring, that the campus is for classes, that we measure student success solely academically, that costs can increase faster than quality, and that accreditation ensures excellence, which are, I mean, these are the guiding fallacies that really have shaped our perception of of what post-secondary education is. Which of the six do you think has the most impact on our imagination of what higher education is today? You know, in in many ways, I think this element of tradition, right, we've come to equate the ideas around tradition is equaling excellence, right? Uh, We assume the fact that uh, if a degree program has remained unchanged for 20 years, and it's still sought after that somehow that that equates with excellence. And in some ways, I think, in the same way, uh, we look at this idea of the vaulted traditional student as the, the student that will go ahead and be excellent. Um, I think we need to really demolish that idea of tradition as equaling excellence. I think it's one of the things that has a tremendous degree of creep into our dialogues, into our ways. It's the thing that goes ahead and oftentimes becomes the counterweight uh, towards innovative and more iterative practices. You know, uh, tradition is uh, assuming the fact that the models that we need to look at for valuable you know, student experience need to come from higher education. Um, as, as we wrote about, you know, some great examples are institutions like American University and how uh, they looked towards improving student experience and they looked towards the grocery store chain Wegmans and they looked towards the Mayo Clinic for looking at how they improve student experience. 
being intentional to break with tradition is sometimes hard. Um, there's almost a sense that's an anathema to values of an institution, but I would say it's oftentimes the kind of the more debilitating aspect of, uh, of some of the assumptions we're making. Let me ask you this, you know, as we're talking about drawing examples, drawing inspiration from other industries when it comes to how we shape the student experience, what would you consider a core tenant, a central characteristic of a great customer experience for a modern post-secondary learner? I mean, I think for me, it really revolves around this idea of accessibility. Um, it, it revolves around this idea of accessibility and self-care. Uh, you know, I think the pandemic has really provided time and time again examples of where we see students, colleagues, friends, uh, community members that it really had oftentimes been left um, by the wayside and all of a sudden finding opportunities for them to go ahead and be included more uh, significantly in dialogues, whether it's in the PTA meeting where, you know, the parent with MS could never go to the PTA meetings in person, all of a sudden they're an equal participant. So that translates down for me to student experience. The idea of how do we make sure that student health care and mental health accessibility is not available on a nine to five perspective, but we embrace the accessibility that oftentimes the student that needs counseling may be more available and more able to access counseling in a more productive fashion if it's at 9 p.m. Uh, and how do you make sure your institution becomes flexible for that? Uh, you know, one thing is we're going through strategic planning, we're talking about this idea of radical accessibility. Uh, how do we not just say, we've got learning accommodations for neuroatypical learners, but how do we start to really celebrate neuroatypical diversity? How do you become the institution that doesn't just say, well, we'll support or accommodate you, but rather we welcome you. We know that, that people with neuroatypical um, learning um, difficulties Oftentimes there are people that are also really high performers in certain areas and, and how do you cultivate an environment for them to succeed? So how would you define radical accessibility? So for me, the major tenets of being a radically accessible and inclusive institution, I think, you know, and this is something members of my team, we, we keep kind of banding around is really an atmosphere where you're celebrating diversity and you're reducing barriers so that everyone in our community at, at the Minneapolis College of Art and Design can be their authentic and best selves. Um, and so for me, that commitment embraces all aspects of the college from you know, varied identities uh, um, and abilities, mental health, affordability, pedagogy, and as well as what you think of when you think of accessibility, which is physical accessibility and ADA compliance. So, so I'd say for me, it's the whole you can't simply look at it just from a physical or a mental. You have to look at it from this more holistic perspective. It's everything from affordability of education to a pedagogy that is rigorous yet flexible. We all know the stories of the faculty member that says, you know, I'm sorry, it's an unexcused absence. If you have to go ahead and have your appointment with your therapist, you've got to go ahead and schedule that outside of hours. Yet at the same time, we're asking students to go ahead and take a greater degree of self-care so that they're not hospitalized for say a, a psychotic episode or something like that. So we have to be able to strike a balance. If we mean radically accessible, uh, it means that there isn't one piece of the experience that somehow is, is immune from having to change to be more adaptable. I mean, it's obvious, you know, how adopting a framework like that would support a more diverse group of learners would create that level of access and inspiration for, for an institution. But you also highlighted in your example there a I think a, an experience that all of us would have at least, if not heard of, experienced personally of not being able to 
adapt a standard institutional process to meet the needs of a person at a point in time. So, you know, can you walk through a few of the other obstacles that an institution or that institutional leaders might face when it comes to trying to create a culture of radical accessibility at their institution? Yeah, you know, I mean, one of the pieces is, and this is something that I think probably, you know, and I say this also with the keen awareness of, of, of where I am um, in Minneapolis and what occurred with the murder of George Floyd, that issues regarding diversity and equity work now probably are, are more prevalent than ever before. That being said, there are still many that go ahead and see issues regarding diversity and equity whether it translates through pedagogy or student experience, is still ancillary to excellence. Um, and that is probably like one of the more significant underlying obstacles for us to create radical accessibility, right? Is, is this notion to say issues regarding equity and diversity are nice, they're uh, attachable and detachable instead of truly transformative. The difference between institutions that are able to go ahead and layer these things on, but feel like that they still remain they keep the kind of corpus of their enterprise unchanged are ones that I think are not really truly committed to this work and ones that aren't going to see the benefit of a truly transformative organization. That's interesting. And I guess in highlighting sort of the cultural shift, certainly that would have happened in Minneapolis over the past year and a half to two years, how has that impacted the way that folks are looking at sort of accessibility and diversity in the context of the responsibility of a post-secondary institution. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's there's so many different ways that we can approach that. Part of this is about, you know, um, MCAT is a college that has a high percentage of PAL eligible students. So students that go ahead and have uh, parents with combined incomes of, you know, less than $60,000. And so we have a high percentage, 44% of our students come from um, e- economically stressed backgrounds. Um, uh, within that, we're fortunate to continue to work on diversity, but how do we go ahead and see us really increasing that diversity? How are we more intentional about that? How do we go ahead and create our fundraising efforts that allow us to create full tuition scholarships uh, for those individuals? So there's kind of that aspect of it too. But part of it's also to, to keep those students of color, to keep those students that are first generation, you need to have a faculty that really reflect those values. You need to have a faculty that inspire, mentor, uh, associate, uh, sympathize with that those specific experiences. There's the piece of making sure that we're really aggressive about looking at in our work in terms of our, our faculty culture. Then there's also leadership too. Um, how do you go ahead and make sure that leadership takes an acknowledgement to say, what are we giving up to do this work? Um, because with limited resources, if you're committing to this work, it can't just simply be additive in nature. If we're saying it's transformative, then it means that you have to decide what you're giving up. Does it mean the fact that you know everyone's budgets gets kind of a tax, if you will, that goes towards anti-racism and anti-oppression training? Maybe. You know, does it mean the fact that we set aside amount of time that we would normally do for other valuable meetings and conversations specifically to talk about this work on a regular basis? That's possible. My sense is it takes multiple different levers to pull. Uh, at the college, we're we are pulling multiple different levers on this, and we have to acknowledge the work is hard. And I say that as a brown person with immigrant parents, the work is hard. Uh, the work is it's tiring, and there's no sense of a completion date, like a strategic plan that you're going to have the board put a, a stamp on at one meeting. Uh, this is work that's going to be ongoing for a long time. You know, we've talked obviously about the six fallacies that you highlighted, and, and we've talked a little bit about 
I guess the challenges that come with with the right. idea of framing higher education is, as a tradition-based institution, as a tradition-based concept, what will it take for, for colleges and universities to start reshaping those traditional models to really start meeting the diverse and complex needs of modern learners? You know, in many ways, it, I think it takes leadership, right? I mean, that's the first and foremost thing. It takes the fortitude of not wanting to return and run back to normal, you know? I think there are plenty of institutions out there that are just hoping this is a blip, you know, in the kind of general trajectory of their institutions, and they want to get back to things as normal. The, the big push is what is a, a return to campus or a return to kind of your normal modalities of learning? I, I hope for one we never go back to normal. You know, I think that there's an opportunity. There's an opportunity too, where things are still molten, right? Before they start to cool down. And, and within that opportunity, I think this is a great way to start to think about new, um, uh, new pathways, uh, new ways of thinking about things and potentially trying to create a culture of iteration, right? How do you create a culture where we don't just teach innovation in our classrooms and our design pedagogy, uh, but we go ahead and actually live innovation. Uh, living innovation means the fact that you've got to be able to try, fail, learn uh, on certain things. It may mean that we're talking about try, fail, learning in terms of the delivery or communication regarding financial aid. Uh, it may mean that in terms of our admissions process. It may mean that in terms of our curriculum. You know, and that goes a little bit back to this idea of tradition too. Maybe curriculum is meant to be blown up every five years or every 10 years. You know, maybe it's really meant to be torn down and rebuilt instead of assuming the fact that it has the same relevancy uh, now that it did 10 years ago. That's something I actually wanted to, to circle around on. And I'm so glad you raised it. Because when we think about what I consider to be one of, our, I guess, our, our major disruptors that seems to be coming down the pipeline as, as a post-secondary industry right now, it's in the broad acceptance of micro-credentialing. You know, or at least the widening, the slowly widening acceptance of micro-credentialing, where 10 years ago, you know, it's, it was kind of nice to have. It lived in continuing ed. No one really touched it. Sure, right. But increasingly, you know, we're trying to find ways. How do we make degree programs stackable? How do we start recognizing more granular sets of learning? And I think what it starts to speak to is a shift in, a, in an institutional model from being gatekeepers of knowledge to sort of contextualizers of knowledge and assessors of uh, and, and verifiers of, of, of knowledge and competency. Yeah. How does that start to shift the way the institution operates, especially as, as a school of art and design, yeah. when you consider the opportunity to start integrating stackability and micro-credentials into your standard operating procedures? You laid it out really wonderfully in terms of the history of micro-credentialing and how it's evolved. I think for me, there's there's two trains that micro-credentialing um, operates in. One is in a very kind of comfort zone level micro-credentialing, which is really meant for individuals that have at least had an undergraduate degree, right? It's the MA light, right? In the sense, it's the, you know, kind of, it's the thing that your corporation pays for or that your nonprofit pays for it's the kind of intensive five weeks or it's the kind of year long or whatever else. And you get that certificate, you get that micro-credentialing, you know, and I keep thinking of, it was institutions like Cornell that, you know, were starting to do that really kind of early on. It was, you know, you know, they have this for, yes, you have an MBA already, you know, but, but here's your chance for an executive leadership kind of certificate program. And, and you start to have that. And that's, I would say that's the comfort level kind of areas, right? Because people are going into this with the surety that they've established some kind of background, um, some kind of pedigree um, within higher ed. The micro-credentialing that is the most volatile for the industry, I think that is the most, in many ways, dangerous for the industry is micro-credentialing that's marketed towards 
uh, high school students, right? That's marketed towards you're leaving high school, you're leaving your K through 12 kind of educational uh, platform, and then you're moving out and you're not ready to make a commitment. Um, and maybe you're looking for an associate's degree, but maybe you're not even looking for an associate's degree. That's the one that's the most significant disruptor uh, of the industry. And the one, quite frankly, that I'm probably the most interested in. It's the possibility of saying there are other values that higher education can provide other than the substantial platform of the four-year degree, which no one ever really completes in four years. Most people complete in six anyways. I think for me, that's the disruptor uh, where uh, maybe it is, you know, kind of an associate's degree that's not considered less than 50% of an undergraduate degree. Maybe there's other forms of that too. But I think um, you think of so many disenfranchised individuals that are leaving high school, but they're not sold on higher education. They're not sold on it. They're not sold on the, the history. They're not sold on the tradition. They're not sold on the cost. There's a notion that says, Oh, well, those are the kids that should just get a, you know, kind of a, some kind of vocational degree, which is, I think, what happened in, in when I was growing up and went through high school is that you had the, what you called the VOPRO kids, right, you know, the vocational professional kids, and they went on to become, you know, plumbers and electricians and were really successful. But there's another pathway. And I think that that's, that's very interesting, but it's also heresy in many ways, right? Because if you're saying that, you're also saying there's something inherently flawed with the four-year educational model. So walk me through your vision for what higher education could look like if we switch to a model of radical accessibility. I think higher education has a lot to benefit, not just in terms of a bottom line, but it has a lot to benefit to be really seen as continual global contributors to dialogues about how to make the world better. If, if, if institutions really could commit to this idea of radical accessibility, I think that there's an opportunity here for institutions to really feel like that they're truly for so many other people um, that normally would feel left behind. The important piece here is that institutions sometimes run towards these cute terms without really asking the deep questions and holding themselves accountable to the work that they need to do. There's putting the term radical accessibility in a, in a strategic plan because it sounds good and people think it seems cool. The other thing is to go ahead and say, how are you making sure you're acting on this? Who are you responsible to? Who are you accountable to? And how are you doing that on a regular basis? If many institutions start doing it together, then you're also creating a culture of accountability that exists beyond your own myopic universe. And I think that's very exciting for me. I also think that in particular, thinking about you know, this moment right now, we know the fact that the psychological and educational impact of the pandemic is something we're not gonna be able to understand for years to come. It's impact specifically the young learners. We know that you know even just in the New York City school district alone, I mean, anyone saying anywhere between 15 and 20% of students during the pandemic just didn't show up. They kind of disappeared. All right, how are we getting those individuals back? How do we make sure they're, they're set for a pathway to success? If institutions of higher education can come together, share resources and go ahead and think about opportunities where the broader goal is to make sure that you're able to somehow work to support those students that were lost during this pandemic. Uh, it's something that goes beyond the bottom line of any single institution. Uh, but I think then really does say more broadly that higher education provides a tremendous value proposition for individuals that have felt disenfranchised and traumatized by what's occurred over the past 18 months. 
This episode is brought to you by Modern Campus in partnership with The Evolution. Modern Campus empowers higher ed institutions to thrive when radical change is required to deal with lower student enrollments and revenue, rising costs, crushing student debt, and even school closures. Powered by the industry's only student-first modern learner engagement platform, presidents and provosts can work with Modern Campus to create pathways for lifelong learners while marketing and IT can deliver Amazon-like personalization and instant fulfillment. To find out more on how you can transform your institution to meet the needs of today's modern learner, visit moderncampus.com. That's moderncampus.com.